Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration in guided prayer and meditation. My name's Jory. Today we're talking with Mark Shaw. Mark Shaw is a student of the Christian mystics for over 20 years, a writer and teacher focusing on the contemplative teachings and practices to help people grow toward greater awareness of their true self. He went to Seattle Pacific University where he majored in psychology and literature. Mark is a graduate of Fuller Seminary with a master's in theology and the arts, a member of Spiritual Directors International, a member of the Ignatian Spirituality Project, a presenter in training with Contemplative Outreach, and a co-founder of Contemplative Light, a community of interfaith teachers and writers providing contemplative resources for growth and healing. Mark Shaw, welcome to Methods. How are you? Hi, doing well, Joy. Thanks. Happy to be here, man. So, um, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself um, if they're not familiar with your work? Absolutely. So, I uh, I was raised in a Pentecostal home, um, sort of you know nomadic existence, traveling from place to place, and um, my parents were both ordained, and then they had done. Uh, sort of short-term mission work in uh, Germany before I was born and had felt a call and had constant invitations to go back. So after the fundraising rounds, uh, finally, by the time I was nine, we up and moved from the West Coast. We'd been kind of up and down Washington, Oregon, mostly the Pacific Northwest, and headed off to Germany. Um, and so I was coming from a pretty conservative, pretty sort of separatist Christian subculture, kind of the Christian cultural bubble of evangelicalism into this sort of post-Christian secular society. Um, and just, you know, all the, the sort of cultural um, repositioning that goes with that and uh, the questioning of of assumptions um, in a lot of the the kind of unquestioned conditioning that certainly, at least at that age, most of us still have on trying to kind of construct our identity. And then um, was kind of a drift after that. I, you know, girlfriend was in Australia. My, my family was in Germany. My brother was back in the States. And so I was, I was just kind of, um, you know, the epitome of this sort of third culture child, not really knowing um, kind of, you know, even geographically, kind of my place in the world <laughs> physically. And so eventually by turns, I kind of, I took a year off and then ended up in, uh, in the Seattle Pacific University in the Pacific Northwest. And it's it, it, a free Methodist college. So it's, it's a little more mainline perhaps than, than what I grew up in and a little more intellectual um, and ended up uh, in this English class and had, was kind of leaning towards declaring majors and we ended up in this world literature class and the professor was clearly deeply knowledgeable in scripture, deeply knowledgeable in theology uh, and was, you know, highly respectable in terms of the person that came across um, and their ability to frame sort of spiritual truths in kind of fresh ways. And sure enough, he had kind of grown up outside the Christian culture and was kind of well-read in Buddhism even before he went to college even um, and had a conversion experience while traveling Europe himself and 
ended up an Episcopalian and a spiritual director and had studied with, it turns out, Thomas Keating and be, become a, um, a commissioned presenter of, of Centering Prayer, which I, you know, maybe 20 years later became myself. Um, and all this, I kind of found out after the fact of, of how much kind of overlap and parallel there was. But anyway, that kind of started me on this offshoot journey of kind of hungering for that level of, of, of kind of genuine transformation, this kind of grace-filled perspective that didn't just sort of use the language um, and kind of but impose a belief, but try to find the threads where transformation toward wholeness became possible. And so that tension between a sort of, um, you know, salvation project as kind of the heart of the Christian life, let's say, that I had known, and of course, growing up as an evangelical missionary, that is the whole organizing principle. And to, to have that shift is, is quite a sort of uh, upending of the apple cart. And so and this whole time uh, through studies, through that journey led me to seminary. I ended up as part of this fledgling program at Fuller Seminary for Theology and the Arts. And um, meanwhile, this, the, this whole time, I've got this pretty deep-seated struggle with sexual addiction that um, is, is beneath the surface uh, part of this cycle, depending on which framework I apply, of just kind of um, shame and guilt or hiding um, and a, a lack of transparency, a kind of keeping people and systems at arm's length. Um, and at some point, a friend, I, I had come to this point in life, I'm just by, by temperament, certainly kind of as an introvert, like to keep my options open in social situations, don't want to get overcommitted, relationships don't want to be overcommitted. I like to preserve some margin for rest, uh, not getting too overly, in part because uh, of, of being kind of responsible and not trying to stack too many responsibilities for fear of being drained. And, and so I'd come to a point in my life after graduation, getting a job, getting married, where I just felt completely stifled in so many different ways. And it took a friend reintroducing me to Centering Prayer and Thomas Keating in very kind of, you know, uh, non-didactic, gentle um, ways of, of accompaniment in, in just kind of being there for me in that space. And it, they, once I made it a regular practice and integrated that as a daily rhythm, after kind of hitting this sort of spiritual rock bottom of like, okay, what, what, are my, what are my escape routes here? There's divorce and I can run off. There's suicide. There's um, cheating. My needs are not getting met. Not only that, but I don't think they ever will be. And kind of hitting a, a very low point in terms of the perceived options and my relationship, my kind of inner attitude toward life circumstance. 
and it, 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 it felt like what I had been told, if I am a true Christian, I will be free from, you know, Jesus set the captives free, free from bondage and fear. Um, and, and here it was, I, I was worse than I'd ever even thought was possible. Um, and so engaging in this, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure so many of your listeners are aware of this heart of, of the centering prayer practice of consenting to the presence and action of God within through this repetition of the sacred word. And, and here's a key phrase in the, the instructions on centering prayer, which is ever so gently. I'd have this tendency to push back against, to go on internal sort of um, rants in my self-talk of, you know, tinged with a kind of spite and anger and bitterness at myself for having made these decisions. Um, It's just kind of sunk beneath layers of kind of um, disappointment and sort of self-pity and failure. And to have movement out of that through this gentle relinquishment, and then after even months being able to kind of not having solved any of the practical problems of struggling in job, in marriage, in um, progress, in any meaningful way, being very kind of low on energy given the demands that I have found myself in practically. But having that newfound spaciousness surrounding that life situation that I could step away from it just a half step at first and release it instead of constantly feeling like almost every moment of the day I must solve these problems at the level of the rational mm-hmm. what can I do daily you know trying to talk to friends or make lists or journal or seek out therapy this cannot live this way. And as I was going through that process of release, um, I, I just came across these old lectures from this professor from back in college and him starting off this class on Dante and, and uh, Odysseus and uh, the brothers Karamazov, these different heroes from world literature saying we're lost we're trying to get home and realizing that is the start of our spiritual journey mm-hmm. kind of recognizing the lostness and so um the the movement over the next couple years was so radical including this kind of after i want to say maybe two maybe three years It'd be this recurring, you know, slightly improved. No, I'm back down, resenting my life situation. No, I've got movement, kind of this up and down spiral. That eventually, there was a a moment of such profound breakthrough 
that whether it's um, I, I can only kind of resonate or liken it to stories told by like an Eckhart Tolle when he was on the verge of suicide and the next morning he woke up completely free uh, of concern, resentment, resistance of just a pure kind of openness and ease and freedom and and a, a peace. You know, all of a sudden, when I'd gone through that experience, these passages from Scripture kind of flashed through your head that you then realize, oh, it wasn't the belief system that gave me peace that passeth all understanding. It was this process of uh, relinquishment. And, and, and now these metaphors make sense of death and rebirth, of dying to self. Um, and then immersing myself back into that kind of reading, whether it's Thomas Keating or Thomas Merton, and having some language to help frame that with understanding the nature of the false self and these three ego centers that we tend to gravitate, you know, our lives tend to organize around, whether it's safety and security, affection, esteem, or power and control. And mine very... Um, kind of uh, egregiously being affection and esteem, being in different situations, wanting to be noticed, wanting to be wanted, wanting to be desired in a romantic relationship as a kind of constant, and to be able to articulate that, see it when the mental scripts start rising and playing out and allowing to hold it, see oneself in that and not be ashamed, but instead kind of cultivate and develop this eye of, of grace that can just gaze on that in a, in a loving, grace-filled way without self-condemnation in this kind of turbulent cycle we're on. Now, at the exact same time, I'm experiencing this levity. I'm looking around at my closest friends in their life situations and I, I have a brother and he just seemed in the in the doldrums of suburgatory with a job that that you know he's doing everything he can to make as mo as much money as possible but it's certainly not fulfilling or life-giving um struggles in the family a kind of you know, middle age deadness set in and another friend who is going through a divorce, another friend on the verge of maybe a second divorce, another who's being kicked out by his girlfriend. And I'm, there is, seems to be no path to wholeness within that context. Um, there is some like, you know, I know God's got me some kind of what sound like sort of Christian platitudes that some would address, but I wasn't seeing any genuine uh, movement. And it should be this season of life where whatever issues build up in teens and, and 20s and 30s, and we try to live the best life we can with our conditioning, somewhere in that late 30s, mid to late 30s, early 40s season, it seems like those problems kind of come home to roost in a unique way. And they can't be swept under the rug anymore. Um, 
at least that that was just a pattern I recognized in my own personal sphere. And so I wanted to, in so many conversations, offer something that could move the needle, move toward transformation, that could kind of frame their thinking toward where can healing be found that isn't just uh, a kind of patchwork, um, you know, band-aid on a real wound. And so given kind of the journey I'd been on, I was just kind of grasping for a, a, a metaphor for that journey of death and rebirth that, that, that could be practically applicable. It didn't require any of these people to go get an advanced degree in you know, theology or literature. And that's kind of where this idea for this book, Dante's Road, came from. It was like, let me provide some practical steps forward. And at the same time, I have so many of my friends aren't explicitly people of faith or in the church. So if I front load it with Christianese or make it a, quote, Christian book with, you know, constant references to scripture to back up this sort of spiritual authority of the thing, that's going to be a turnoff and an obstacle, a barrier to entry for a lot of them. So um, much like you've articulated, you attempt to do in your, in your work, in your content is to offer some opportunities for transformation and try to create some kind of space where movement becomes possible. And so that's where this, this idea came from for the book of framing, because we have such an impoverished secular language surrounding spirituality. Oftentimes it's just sort of problem solution Based. We kind of think in terms of either, um, you know, medical terminology or marketing speak. Um, and I, I tried to find this other gear. And, and, and man, much like you recognized, I, having gone through um, both Christian college and seminary and watched a lot of people go through the sort of initial naive version of faith, then go through a kind of rigorous deconstruction and then kind of be left high and dry with just an impoverished sort of quasi Christianity that they kind of sort of believed in sometimes when it was useful, try to frame a real livable, um, authentic spirituality that led to a, a sense of vitality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, it was, I was trying to, to target kind of that inflection point of, okay, I've been through the deconstruction phase, and now I'd like some kind of reconstruction to take place. What are some some steps we can take to get there? And for me, it just was very clear, having gone through my own journey, that whatever our particular wound is or shadow side is kind of the place to start. And not only that, I think that's that's you know part of this heart of the the gospel really of the the way of the cross let's call it i really enjoyed the the way that you framed the spiritual path through through dante's journey down and, and his ascent back upward it reminded me a lot of the way joseph campbell describes the hero's journey in his work mm-hmm. and i i picked out a passage that that stood out to me and i wonder if you could talk about it a little bit You say, just as Dante walks downward through the nine circles of hell, 
grappling with the various torments he encounters, we will walk our own journeys of the downward way, entering into the darkness of our own caves, exploring both the conscious and unconscious suffering we experience in the world, in our families, and in our own lives. Equipped with this deeper self-knowledge, we then move along the outward way, or into the world, experiencing a newfound sense of direction and orientation, just as Dante uses his climb up Mount Purgatory as an occasion to reflect on vocation and purpose. With a deeper understanding and clear-eyed but gracious gaze toward our own faults, we have the freedom to change our relationship to the world around us, establish, establishing healthy rhythms of rest, of play, of work, and a greater awareness of others and how we might serve them. So can you expand a little bit about on that? Because it seems like um, it reminded me a lot, too, of the, the threefold path of the, the Desert Fathers and Purgation, Illumination, and Union. Um, do, you, do you try to tie that into the, uh, the path at all? Yeah, for sure. I, I, in, in fact, that was, was very consciously maybe you know, a, a millimeter beneath the surface there. For sure, and and how um, even more sort of explicitly, and how that winds up summarized in Evelyn Underhill's uh, mysticism, where she sort of expands the traditional threefold path into the fivefold, just adding the kind of pre-stage maybe of awakening, mm-hmm. so awakening into purgation, into illumination, and then this dark night of the soul, uh, the, a term that I at least in relationship to her work is often kind of misused in, in culture in general through to divine union. And that was kind of always the vision of exactly what you're saying. Here are these threads of Dante. And, and it's, there's a correspondence there archetypally to what Joseph Campbell is talking about. And Oh, if you look at it from a slightly different angle, it's also this, path of the contemplative journey Mm -hmm. and so um and now from a certain perspective that's a fun template to discuss to use you know if you're an ambitious kind of young writer uh, hey maybe i can use this template to write some scripts and maybe get into hollywood or it, it can kind of become this abstract framework but uh, in, in an in an earlier stage of development, but kind of having gone through and you know ver- uh, experienced deeply some of the the pain of the process, because that stripping away what so many of the mystics talk about, sort of dying before you die, is a painful process, and um, whatever we are clinging to that makes us feel secure or makes us feel like we're somebody um, having that stripped away is going to lead us into a state of you know radical disorientation mm-hmm. and it was kind of at that inflection point I wanted to offer something here's a kind of a, a little rope maybe to climb back out of that um, but it, exactly what you're talking about kind of that that structure of it was, From the perspective of the sort of small self, let me, instead of using just that generic term, the small self or the shadow, um, which in, in kind of pop psychology and common parlance, it's like 
we need to acknowledge our shadow. We need to, whether it's institutionally as, a, uh, as Christians or nationally as Americans or on an individual level, kind of call out and articulate our sin and be transparent, it, which is all well and good. But this, this process of transformation requires a little more specificity. And I thought that Thomas Keating's ego centers hit home and resonated so much individually that that can lend a little more substance to that particular reflection of like, what is your hell specifically? What is your tendency toward a kind of personal or outward directed violence, let's say, on the level of thought, maybe at first of emotion and then action? What is it? You, what are the patterns you tend to get caught up in specifically? And let's offer some language and reflection around that. And then think about what does that vice or weakness look once it's been transformed? Once you've kind of allowed it to, to come to light, see it for what it is. Um, and totally out of left field, um, I had listened to this uh, interview on the radio in, in LA at the time where I, where I uh, worked and, and taught was a, uh, an interview with magic Johnson, who was like my childhood, you know, icon, idol, superstar. And having read sort of biographies of his, he knew he kind of fell into that, um, you know, power and control dominance, alpha male achievement, uh, space in terms of his ego center, but whatever his journey had been, he was on this radio show speaking life into these hosts and kind of calling out the work they were doing in the city and, and really kind of uplifting them. And it struck me as this, this opposite of the shadow having moved through your, your vice can kind of become your superpower. Mm. My own, um, self-directed um, sensitivity and self-consciousness, once I've let go of that, I can direct that awareness, not inward, but outward and kind of see and, and perceive maybe with a little um, more fine-grained acuity than others, how other people are doing emotionally, where they are, be, be able to kind of read those cues and speak into those situations where, uh, in noticing things other people might not mm -hmm. and so having kind of moved down through that death crucifixion moment there being uh, having perceived that kind of symmetry where coming out the other side the capacity to help to move others toward healing, to be a presence of grace and healing and be a kind of outflowing, outpouring source of that became possible. Whereas before, we're, if we're still sort of stuck in uh, at the level of ego and identifying with that and its needs, we might espouse those values and be able to uh, to do a little bit of good work but eventually you know we, we get into conflict and introduce our own ego needs and kind of um 
make sure that those are superseding and sometimes becoming an obstacle to the to the work we're trying to do. So, yes, everything you you mentioned is a kind of um, kind of a conscious attempt to to frame that movement. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of have this frustration too with the way that a lot of speakers now are tackling the whole issue of like Christian deconstruction and, and uh, reconstruction. Yeah. And there seems to be this advent of like an anything goes kind of uh, mindset, mm. which mm-hmm. it, I, I don't think is necessarily bad in itself, but the way that it manifests, at least to me, is that there's, it's, it's like the, the threefold path, but without the purgation, like there, there's mm-hmm. no, there's no healthy asceticism in it. It seems like um, there's a lot of embracing of vices and of, because it's it's a retaliation or a reaction to the the constricting form of faith that that right. those people were in before, and so the they come out the other side and and now say like, oh well, this is great. You know, I have direct access to God. Um, you know, I can, I can do as I please. I can, um, engage in whatever behavior and, and thought patterns I like, and everything is valid, but there's this absence of an entire channel in the tradition that, that says, well, no, these, these things are, are passions and they are things that, stand in the way sometimes of purity of, of heart and the, the eye of the intellect in, in, in seeing God. And so do you find that to be the case in people you talk to? Yeah, for sure, man. I'm, that, it just very clearly echoes some I mean, conversations I remember having in seminary at the time it was the, the emerging church was big and this was LA was at least one of the sort of hubs or epicenters around that. And that seemed to be um, kind of in the ether um, as, a, as a, a kind of overcorrective toward anti-intellectualism. Well, now you have to have read kind of XYZ books to, to have the lingo down and, um, you know, rejecting the overly rigid, um, you know, morality police mentality of a lot of the churches people grew up in. Um, was this overcompensation the other way, um, and and that seemed to be um, kind of just called like good enough. And I remember having a lot of conversations, feeling like I guess I, I'm, what I'm missing is uh, any opportunity or avenue towards spiritual maturity. Um, and I think sometimes that is one thing I've learned kind of in this process going through the, the, the writing and, and editing and publishing process was the extent to which the kind of um, a lot of leaders in the church and a lot of the, the uh, theology and ecclesiology surrounding kind of church planting and thought process and planning and that goes into that is a lot uh, sociological. It's about kind of organizing groups. And sometimes that kind of the individual path of transformation into wholeness can get lost or obscured a little bit. And what that looks like 
um, I mean, from a more traditional Christianese, it's called discipleship. But even that term, certainly as I grew up with it, becomes, you know, um, all about kind of moral conformity versus kind of abundant vitality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think absolutely what you're saying, the kind of um, it's an unfortunate sort of byproduct of the rejection of that that rigid structure but i think um part of a, a byproduct of the contemplative path anyway is even though you might have to go through a kind of libertine period to get there is a heightened discipline and kind of moral focus because you start paying attention to on a very sort of subtle level of perception, the ways in which what you think and what you say and what you do influence your state of mind and kind of your spiritual equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and, and that's why I think rightly you, you've talked about kind of leading with practices because that's kind of where that transformation starts, where you start perceiving in a m- more subtle way where those things are. And the, the upshot of that be- becomes kind of quite conservative. Whereas, you know, most mystics and contemplatives and, and sannyasins or, or from whatever tradition, they're, they're, they're going to uh, be teetotalers and, and not drink alcohol and because it kind of numbs the perception and, and, you know, stimulates desire that is trying to be relinquished. And, and, uh, caffeine is an agitator in, in many respects. So at the radical levels, there becomes this, this kind of return to a, a, as you put it, an asceticism. You say in the book quite a few times, uh, and this is, kind of tangentially related to that that I'm trying to tie together conceptually here but you say we're lost and we're we're trying to get home and it seems to me in some aspects of spirituality um the tendency is to use the idea of like uh oneness or buddha nature or emphasis on being not as a healing balm but almost as an excuse to avoid or ignore the reality of, of suffering um, mm. instead of seeing its transience and going through it. So how do you think that relates to the insight of like the Vedic sages that say uh, that uh, Asi, thou art that or um, of the Buddhist teachers that um, say we already are of Buddha nature. So like how do you balance the path of descent and ascent of the Christian tradition with the insight that there may be nowhere to go and nothing to do. Right. Um, I, I think that gets to a, the absolute reality in which it's true. There's nothing to do and nowhere to go. And we are that which we have been seeking. And this relative experience on the phenomenal plane in which there is a body and there is a personal history and there is a a uh, 
a, a mental, emotional makeup that is unique to you and, and um, things to overcome, to realize and become a manifestation of that ultimate reality, which you then realize was always the case. And so there is the eternal, the absolute, the sort of Buddha nature, Christness, and then the process of sloughing off and relinquishment to not just accept that as a conceptual truth, but to embody that and on an ontological level. Um, and the, it, it, some of what you're talking about exactly in, in the in the prior um, question was this element of discipline that comes into play to become more and more attuned to those ego egoic tendencies that over and over again lower the shroud mm. between us and and that level of perception and of being and to affirm that truth without going through the process of transformation to embodiment i think it's one thing you're touching on that can be a danger because we can maybe intuitively have a foretaste of it um there, there are two ideas that come to mind one is i think joseph campbell who said you know, a lot of people in the East come from cultures where the ego is like an eggshell and you just need maybe a tiny hammer to kind of tap at it and for it to crack open and realize its connection with oneness. But in the West, we've got these uh, thick cement layers of ego mm -hmm. because of the, the individualism that we're so uh, conditioned by and you need a jackhammer to get at it. Mm -hmm. And, and that, I think oftentimes we import Eastern philosophy and thought, and I think rightfully so, that, that you know, intercultural um, dialogue has been huge and just is, is part of the growth of, of humanity and consciousness. But I think we also need to be aware of the, we've accumulated these, what a teacher named Shunyamurti calls the postmodern egos, mm -hmm. which are even – um, you know, um, lack a certain substantiality beneath that accumulated concrete layer. And so um, the discipline and fervor to penetrate that, that thickness, um, it, it is a process in as much as once the process has yielded its fruit, Yes, that absolute layer of reality of of um, you know the potential for divine union is can can be affirmed. So I know this is all kind of up in the air uh, and 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 theory right now. But how would you recommend people to actually put these ideas? And these ways of being into into practice is there like a concrete um, the th a thing that people can end this podcast and go uh, enter into or participate in that would uh, connect them 
with these sorts of ideas? So I think there are, um, I mean, traditionally there are the coherence of kind of three strands. One is, and maybe the, the foundation is a personal practice that is ongoing um, and ideally daily, even though if you're committed to a daily practice, there's going to be interruption and that's part of it. But it's a practice plus a community, then that can be a distant community. Um, but I, I think we often think of the ascetics and maybe Thomas Merton and these hermits, but they weren't, they didn't always start off as hermits. That was kind of a, a, a next level layer of progression. So practice community and teaching, I, I, I feel like there, we go through times when we just need to be rest in the divine presence and dwell in that space and allow the transformation to occur. But then there are other times where we need to be brought back to some sort of essential wisdom. And, and so it's really the, the combination of those three. I would invite, whether it's through you, your network, um, people are either starting or kind of hit a roadblock on the contemplative path that they seek out community where they can uh, authentically explore that path and its, and its obstacles as well. And, and, and there may be opportunities for mentorship or at least companionship. And then um, I, I just can't emphasize enough the, the necessity of a practice and along with that, setting the practice. Even. Uh, a friend of mine who guides Centering Prayer Retreats and himself goes on week-long sort of sessions at at um, uh, Buddhist retreat centers. Talks about the importance at least once a year for him, and I can certainly affirm that of kind of digging the well that fills up with water during that intensive retreat time. That becomes you know, the silence that we in, uh, immerse ourselves in in our daily practice becomes a return home. You're not redigging the well like it might feel like if you've gone years without some kind of more intensive departure into, you know, into some kind of liminal space where things get hollowed out and relinquished and that process accelerates. So I would really, really recommend along with teaching and community that people um, have that kind of contemplative rhythm mm -hmm. of an immersion along with the daily practice. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been centering prayer. Well, Mark, this has been fantastic. I want to be respectful of your time. So can you tell everyone where to go to access your, your work and, and to find your book? Absolutely. So um, I post semi-frequently with uh, my partners at I'm, I'm a, an executive director at an organization called contemplative light um and it's this inter-spiritual community of, of of teachers and and authors who are offering occasionally courses we do have a a short course on on five contemplative practices um and a big focus recently has been um a, a course on the christian mystics 
and then the book Dante's Road: The Journey Home for the Modern Soul is is on Amazon or through our website at contemplativelight.org. Um, and I'll be doing some touring uh, behind the book. It's it, up for a number of awards and and um, hopefully when these restrictions lift there'll be some some opportunities to connect locally with people as well yeah that sounds great i'll leave the links to everything at the uh the bottom in the show notes but i really appreciate you talking today and um hope you're well and hope you're socially distancing in this quarantine time and sure hope you have enough toilet paper <laughs> i certainly do actually. <laughs> Well, thank you, Joy. It's been a pleasure, man. All right.